right, the Lord be with you. <laughs> Good morning, St. Luke's. The Lord be with you. I've seen that to be a pretty powerful way to get people's attention. There we go. Great. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Well, come on in and find a seat. Um, I'm Ellen Ott Marshall. I'm a parishioner here. And um, I have this really happy, I have that feeling that you have sometimes where you get to introduce people that you know are really going to like each other and haven't had a chance to meet yet. So this is where I get to see, like, these are my co-authors, and this is my church. How great is that? So I'm so excited um, for this. This has been, um, the uh, talk around this forum has mistakenly been calling this Ellen's book, and Ellen is a co-editor. Catherine, our oldest daughter, whom you all know, and I co-wrote a chapter for this book. Uh, but I'm a co-editor, and there are 13, there are actually 16 people involved with this book. We had three chapters that were co-authored by parents and kids, and we've got one of the uh, sets of parent-kid co-authored uh, folks with us today. But there are 16 people who contributed to this book. Half of them are in the UK. Um, we have one uh, author who's in Toronto, somebody in Los Angeles, Minneapolis, Indianapolis, um, but we are all in Atlanta, and they were all available to come be with us this morning, so I'm really, really uh, lucky and I'm glad that they are here. So let me tell you what we're going to do just by structure, and then I'll um, introduce them. Um, so I'm going to say a few things about just the book as a whole, and then we're each going to take a turn um, just telling you about the contents of the chapter that we wrote, and then I'll do some wrap-up stuff. And I'm being reminded that uh, we actually have copies of the books to sell in the back. Um, they're $20 a piece, and all of it goes to the Ansley School. So this is a great chance to buy a book that has some great content from some great people um, and to make a donation to the Ansley School while you're at it. So um, with us today, we've got uh, four of our contributors. So Don Saliers, who's here, uh, refers to himself as the senior member of our team. The um, authors uh, are parenting kids and all the way from now grandparenting kids all the way to infants. So the families in the book are quite diverse in their structure. But Don is probably known to many of you. He is an emeritus faculty member in theology and liturgics at Candler. He's also a theologian in residence at Candler. Candler, we keep using him as much as we can to keep him pulled in and engaged, and um, students are so grateful for his presence at the school. Anton Flores Masonet is the founding director of Casa Alterna, a ministry of hospitality and solidarity that's connected with the Atlanta Friends meeting. Um, Isaiah Mackey is a sixth grader and student at uh, Centennial Academy. Um, and uh, Carlton Mackey is Isaiah's dad. Uh, he has his own identity. I'll give you his own identity. <laughs> Carlton. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, Carlton is the creator of Black Men Smile, and now he was a colleague of ours at Emory, and uh, he was stolen away by the High Museum. So he's now the assistant director of community dialogue and engagement at the High. So I'm glad he's still available to do things with his old friends in the meantime. So um, this book, let me see if I can do several things at one time here. I don't have quite enough hands. Um, 
So this book is one of many um, projects that probably you all experienced during COVID, which was a labor of love and an uh, effort to try to um, maintain some connections um, and also take advantage, hey Horace, take advantage of our um, uh, technology that would allow us to connect with people that we might not otherwise have connected with. So Susie Snyder is in the top here. She's the co-editor and the book was really her idea. Um, she sort of reached out to say, do you think we could pull together uh, a bunch of people whom we know to be both um, engaged in political and social activism and also fully present parents and talk with them about how they do that, right? Um, and so we started reaching out to our friends and our friends said yes, that even in the sort of uh, difficult and overburdened lockdown year of COVID, that it would be meaningful to them to use some of their precious time to think about not just how they sort of time manage their way through these different, we started calling it the call and the calls, right? How do you sort of respond to a sense of vocation, things you're called to do, and also answer the many calls of being present as a, peer, uh, as a caregiver. So not just a matter of time management, but how do you really integrate all of that work so that you can see your parenting as work of social justice and social and ecological justice activities as part of parenting. So uh, we reached out to people, they said yes, and um, often writing books is a kind of isolating experience, and this was ironically lovely because we were able to connect through Zoom with folks in the UK, Canada, east and west coast of the states and talk about our chapters and read our chapters together. So we gave our authors uh, three simple tasks, simple tasks. One was to name a challenge that they have as a parent who's also committed to social and ecological justice, what's challenging. We asked them to provide some theological reflection on that challenge, and we asked them to name one practice. So something that they do, that they can do with greater intention, and that they could uh, sort of suggest to other parents um, to do a practice that helps in this kind of formation of both presence as a, a caregiver and also uh, practices of social and ecological justice. So what we ended up with is 13 chapters that are um, a variety of parenting contexts, um, a variety of vocational contexts, and a variety of challenges. I mean, they're wrestling with different dimensions of parenting and social justice, all of which are hard. But what we wound up with then are these 13 practices. So, and we framed them then as, a, as invitations really to readers. So I'm gonna turn to my notes here so I can just quickly name them and then we'll get into the, the content a bit. Sorry, I gotta put my glasses on. There we go. All right, so in these 13 chapters then, we invite readers to sing subversive lullabies to their babies, to talk about kindness with your toddlers and kindness to self, to other, and to the planet, to plant edible gardens. Uh, we invite readers to pray with your kids, to make music together, to go on reverse pilgrimages, that's Anton's, to make art and practice meditation, we invite readers to conduct relational meetings and focus groups with their children, to listen to what the children value, wonder about, mourn, desire, and imagine.
We also invite readers to pause, to slow down, to wait, and to respond to the interruption. And we invite them to protest together and to pick up essential, uh, to pack up essential items to give to others, that's Isaiah and Carlton's, and to organize for change together. But we offer these not as items on an overflowing to-do list, but we try to offer them as practices for you, the readers, to consider integrating into your lives. So let me say a word about practices, because we're going to use that word a lot. Uh, practices are a lot more than to-do items. They are more than tasks that you need to complete. Practices are not just things that we do, but they shape who we are and who we are becoming. They remind us that small things matter. They remind us that life requires practice, um, that spirituality and social action are interwoven deeply. Practices are the embodiment of our convictions. They help our lives to reflect the convictions that we hold, and they help us to live into our commitments. They are formative. So one of the real leaders in practices and theology and liturgy is Don Saliers. And so I'm going to hand the mic to Don, or you have your own. And Don's going to talk to us about table talk and music making. Is this on? Yes, yes good. Thank you. Well, I'm so delighted to be back here. This is, this is one of my favorite parishes, though I don't get here very often. I've known your musicians and known your rectors and so on over many years. I've taught at, at uh, Candler for 48 years, and so I've seen a lot of Episcopalians come and go, <laughs> a good bunch. Um, my wife, now deceased for some years, and I raised four daughters. And it's the practices of those four daughters that I'd like to just sketch a little bit about. You may know one of the daughters, uh, part of the Indigo Girls, uh, daughter Emily is one half of the Indigo Girls. And uh, when I think about what family practices can lead to, believe me, I had no idea that there would be a, a member of our, our family, our children, uh, to have so much impact in justice work, as well as singing. But to the four daughters, each one individuated early on. And I think our practices with them, or at least our attempt to practice with them, is part of what helped them to become their own persons, each one very distinctive. The two practices that I write about are very close to the whole family's sensibility. One is singing together, music together, encouraging one another. The four daughters, uh, and we lost our youngest daughter, that's another subtopic for another time. What happens to a family when one of the offspring dies early? And what happens with the practices that you've done with her? Uh, and uh, what that resonance is, uh, et cetera, has resonance through the whole family system. But I'll talk about that another time. So each of the daughters uh, had their own, had her own musical idiom. Um, our oldest daughter sang in the Schola Cantorum, uh, which did the play of Herod. Some of you may remember it was one of the great medieval gifts to Atlanta for years. Uh, we like to joke that she was one of the innocents for 30 years in that, in that, in that play. 
so her interest was in medieval music, Hildegard, and, uh, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, Emily uh, got a guitar in her hands at age seven and never stopped. Um, the next daughter went to Oberlin, uh, studied uh, opera, and is still Oberlin, and and she uh, and she's still singing. Uh, uh, and I enjoy doing concerts with her recitals. Our youngest daughter was into uh, pl uh, music, uh, uh, Broadway, and uh, she probably was in every single uh, uh, musical there was at Shamrock High School at the time. But here's the point. The point is that this practice is not a one-time thing. Consistency is so important in what we're talking about, and we all struggle for it. We struggle in our own moral life, our own religious life, our own daily life, how to be consistent. So a practice is a place, a space, uh, in which we can become consistent with each other, at least for a little while that leaves its own deposit, its own residue. For our four daughters, one of the great practices was, was mutual encouragement in their music. We were fortunate that they individuated their musical interests early, and we saw that they attended one another's concerts, one another's musical efforts, and so on. And uh, one of the remarkable things that can happen when there's mutual encouragement of musical talent is that they begin to respect each other in far beyond just the musical performances. So a notion there of consistent support of one another, quite apart from the parents who had to drive them to places and, uh, and who had to suffer teenage schedules, et cetera, et cetera. Some of you are still in this, I know. Uh, but there was a second practice that I wanted to mention, especially because uh, most of you are church types, um, and that's what happened after church. We tried to persist in that Sunday meal. It was the one time, especially when teenagers get their lives and their schedules scheduled all over the map, we stayed with that Sunday, that Sunday dinner, and uh, it was a forum. It was a forum in justice and theology. The first issue that came up and persisted for a long time was fairness. Mom, Dad, it ain't fair. This is not fair. That was the beginning topic in some ways. All four of them at various stages raised that question and soon that morphs into the question of human suffering. Why is there so much suffering? That was a persistent can you believe it or not, at Sunday meal, this is, this is what we talked about. And then, of course, if the pastor or the priest or whoever they were with preached a sermon, uh, it was subject to questioning. <laughs> and so the parents were subject to questioning. And we had little defense against the onslaught of really good questions. But the discussion amongst the four of them, and I, I, I guarantee, guarantee you, that Emily's work and Jenny's work with the, food, with the community food uh, bank and uh, all of them. Uh, our youngest was very involved in NARAL in California where she was in school. Um, all four of them, I think their, their temperament, their disposition, 
to want to do justice, and especially to alleviate human suffering, uh, came out of those discussions. And I can still remember many of them. Uh, I won't bore you with the details, but you get the general point. So those are the two uh, practices, family practices, I wanted to write about. And uh, as I think about their impact on us as parents, uh, so it isn't just that you have practices that form children. You have practices that come back to living through all kinds of changes. Uh, there were many changes in our household that sustain you. So that's, uh, that's an advertisement for the parents to have some form of consistent practice. For us, it was music and encouragement and, uh, and this, this Sunday meal, Sunday conversation. The one meal a week, some of you are shaking your head, the one time a week we could possibly gather the forces. But again, as I say, I think it was formative in their whole sense of justice and uh, I, I can say as I look at the lives that came from that, uh, worth the practice, even though it's difficult to keep consistent. So those are the contributions I wanted to make to this wonderful project, and I want to congratulate you and my co-authors. It's, uh, it's worth picking up and reading, as St. Augustine would say, tole lege, take and read, take and read. Good morning. Uh, so, tying off of what Don said, uh, I too have lost a son. Uh, my son was 14 when he died. Um, and so, as we sit here and talk about parenting for justice, I think it is important to remember that to pursue a life of justice is to enter into the sufferings of the world. And so, I think accompanied with that uh, is, is, is how do we also uh, have families where we can model and uh, comprehend what suffering means and how to live compassionately as, as kind of a predecessor. Uh, so I had this whole um, idea of what I would talk about when I came here, but I took MARTA and I got off at the Civic Center station and I was immediately um, uh, welcomed by a gentleman who asked if I could offer him some financial assistance, which I did. And then I decided to put myself in a vulnerable position and say, how do you get to St. Luke's? Because the map made it look really close, but it actually have to like go around a bend. Um, and so that simple act then led him to try to connect me with other individuals. He didn't know which church was St. Luke's, uh, but he knew that there were churches around. And so it was just a simple act of vulnerability, of placing myself, of allowing this individual to become uh, the expert and me to be the one who became dependent. As we made the turn though, I knew I was coming to St. Luke's and there's a story with me in St. Luke's that I, that I decided, oh, I'm gonna share this story. But I forgot how close you are to the old Imperial Hotel. I grew up here in Atlanta uh, and uh, so I was thinking more about individuals who formed my life and my bent uh, towards justice. And I remember being in youth ministry in the 80s uh, when this section of Atlanta was very different. Uh, those of you who've been here a long time would know better than I. And the Imperial Hotel was an empty shell of a building. 
that was not empty. It was, it was inhabited by those who are unhoused. And so I can recall my youth minister bringing us to the Imperial with sandwiches and blankets, and we had to crawl through a crawl space to get into this vacated building and, being, and having my eyes opened to a world that living in suburban Atlanta I had never seen. And then having that youth minister help us process what we had seen and integrate it into why we were called to live a life of compassion and justice. Now let me back up to middle school and this building. I was in the Atlanta Boy Choir. And I don't know if they still perform here, uh, but this was one of our regular spots where we would perform, I believe, our Christmas concerts. Now, I could say you know, the Atlanta Boy Choir is quite an elite group, especially if you got to study under the tutelage of Fletcher Wolf, the founding director of the Atlanta Boy Choir. It was quite an elite uh, group of individuals, and I got to uh, be in their touring choir, which meant I sang for Pope John Paul II at the Vatican, and he touched me and blessed me, and that's not in the book, but that's really what transforms all of my life. No. Uh, but the one story that that I'm reminded of as I came here, and all of a sudden, the, just the memories of, of being in that choir brought back, it had nothing to do with this space, but had to do with a tour that we took to Mexico. Uh, and I was 12 years old, and we're in Mexico City. Now, if you've never seen the boy choir, when we tour, we wear blue wool blazers. It didn't matter that it was over 100 degrees in Mexico City. You were going to wear a blue wool blazer and a red, white, and blue clip-on tie uh, and white shirt and gray slacks. And we were about 70 boys standing outside of a restaurant waiting to go in when a street child walks up to us. And I had a little bit of Spanish at the time. I have a lot more now. But I had enough to engage this, this young street child in a conversation to find out that his name was Alejandro and that he was eight years old. Now, the significance for me, even at the age of 12, was that back home in suburban Atlanta, my brother, named Alejandro, was eight years old. And so some mystical experience took place there. The problem in that one was that there was a disconnect because after that very brief interaction, one of the chaperones made the little boy leave and then chastised me for talking with this unknown child of the streets of Mexico City. I don't know what happened within me, why that story still makes an indelible impression upon me, but I do wonder what would it have been like to have had an adult who had come alongside me even at that young age and talk about the ways in which we are interconnected with one another and, and encourage me to continue to cultivate that curiosity and that creativity. So my chapter is not about practices. Yes, there are practices that I, that I put in, into the book. Uh, into the chapter, but it's not about practices as much as it's about a lens. And I use the story of Moses, who I love the fact that perhaps even unbeknownst, from the moment he was born, there were adults 
who were willing to think critically about the world of injustice and that there were adults, whether it was his own mother, whether it was the midwives, or whether it was even Pharaoh's own daughter, who were willing to disobey um, the rhyme and reason of their time in pursuit of a more beautiful world that all of our hearts know is possible. And so it's at the burning bush where God says to Moses, I have seen the misery of my people I have heard their cries, I know their sufferings, and therefore I will come down. That those four things became a lens for the way in which I live my life, and by default by the way in which I parented, uh, and still parent, um, and the way in which I try to model a life where my eyes are opened, much like at Imperial Hotel, where I hear the cries much as I heard on the streets of Mexico City. But then, throughout the years of being cultivated and mentored, how I learned to develop a heart of compassion, how I began to know the sufferings, and how that led me on a path of displacement or downward mobility or solidarity where I would come down and seek the liberation of all. That's an Advent story. That's a parenting story. Um, and that is, that is the story that I kind of just inject uh, into, into this book. And this place, <laughs> and just right down the street, have some of those, share some of those memories with me. I believe the Mexico City story is in the book, but I, I, don't, I know that the Imperial didn't, was not in there. So thank you. Hello. Oh, it's on. Um, I'm going to stay seated next to my co-author here. I mean, I'm going to stand but not go to the middle so I can be close to my co-author. But I, I am um, grateful for this opportunity and to uh, share a stage <clears throat> and to really learn from uh, this group. We, we spoke at another location, and we weren't joined by Isaiah, but I'm really grateful that, that you are with us this morning and um, look forward to hearing from you much more than anything that I have to say. Um, but we wrote about a practice that is important to us in that, you know, hearing you all talk about parenting and in this particular case as fathers, um, it makes me think about the role and the function that my father played in the inv his invisible hand in our chapter right now. My, my, my dad passed away a couple years ago um, to last summer in July. And what he instilled in me and what I um, am reflecting as I stand here is a human who understands the power and who has been transformed by um, experiencing radical hospitality and who out of that has developed and is developing and is trying to instill a heart for giving. Um, that is who my father was. And it is so awesome to, to stand here and think about and appreciate now more than ever what his example and what he modeled in giving and in having a heart for giving, how it has shaped and informed who I am and how in this book, what, what we talk about and what is embodied and um, what is practiced in fact through an idea that, that my son has is, is, is a reflection of what, I, what, what I've been given through the model and example of, of my dad. So um, 
Yeah, I, I just want to acknowledge that and, and I'm grateful for that. So what Isaiah and I um, and what he'll talk more about is a practice that uh, that is based on an idea that Isaiah came up with that um, was a reflection of, of what I what I think are values about not just giving, but about accountability and um, financial literacy was was part of the lesson that I was trying to teach Isaiah. So the shorter version of the story is that, um, and it actually has connections to the high. I don't know if, if, if I expressed it as explicitly in the, in, the, in the last conversation, but before joining the team at the high in the, capacity that, in the capacity that I am now, I worked as a teaching artist for a number of years, coming from Emory and was working with the teen team particularly in helping them reflect on the intersection of art and social justice. And we were at an opening event, or, or we were at an event that was connected to an exhibit that, uh, that was around art and activism. And it was a, an artist named Glenn Kaino, I believe, who created the, the bronze and mirrored sculpture that is in front of the high right now that has a picture of Tommy Smith from the 69 Olympics, and he's raising his fist. So if you go to the high right now on the piazza, you'll see this bronze sculpture of, of a figure with the, their fist raised, and on the front is, is a mirror. Um, how many of you have, have, have seen that whenever you've been to that? So it was at the opening for that exhibit that they had guests come and write what would be protest signs or signs that um, would be installed alongside other signs that would reflect the way that what we know from, from protests and from demonstrations. People hold signs and they are words that are either challenging an assumption that inspire change or that are about resistance in some capacity. So we were at this event and we were asked to write on one of these signs to go and for, for the high to then use to be a part of this installation that would have all of these signs. And I asked Isaiah um, to write something that would be on one, one of those signs. And his question was, what am I, what am I supposed to write? I don't know, what, what am I supposed to do? Um, what, what do you want me to say? And I said, we were talking um, about we have been reflecting on the words of Martin Luther King because of a gift that Isaiah had received from our dear friends um, at the open door. Um, and he had been giving a book that had the words of Martin Luther King. And I asked Isaiah, I said, you know, write something that Dr. Martin Luther King would say on this sign. And Isaiah, took a pen or a marker, and um, can you share what, what you wrote on that sign? We'll come back and I'll ask you more questions, but can you, wrote what you, what you, can you share what you wrote um, on that poster board? You are the best you. Can you say it one more time? You are the best you. So Isaiah, in his infinite wisdom and channeling Dr. King, wrote, you are the best you. And I was like, who is this kid? Um, good job, bro. Uh, and I was just so proud. And I took a picture of that poster. It, um, we did not take it. It was part of the installation. And later, I had the photo of his handwriting. Um, I sent it to a company that 
Um, as, as Ellen was, was talking about, I, I have a, an apparel brand and an empowerment movement called Black Men Smile, which is about um, positive affirmations and creating spaces for black men to have healthy reflections of ourselves um, and to instill and to, and to anchor our presence in the world and our mindset for those that have an opportunity to encounter the work that we are doing, um, for, for, for us to reflect on ourselves as being worthy of and possessing value and being worthy of the love and the time and the care with which we hold ourselves because we know that the world often doesn't reflect that back to us. So one of the messages and with some of our other parents, Isaiah's actually wearing a hoodie that I, had, I, I didn't even think about until we, we were sitting here. Um, one of the messages on um, the shirts that, that we make for our company is, is this one, and it says, Black Joy is Revolutionary. Um, and it's about centering, centering joy, but also understanding joy as an act of resistance, particularly in, in, in context where um, joy is not normalized. So I had that, I had that put on a sweater, <clears throat> Isaiah's You Are the Best You. And I gave it to him um, as a gift. And, and it was a precious moment where he, he, he looked at it and he put it on. And he was like, how did, you know, basically, I wrote this. And here it is now on, on, on a shirt. And um, he wore it. And some people asked about it. And we had the, I, had the I made the decision to allow him and his statement to be some um, among the offerings that we offered for people to choose from for statements to go on t-shirts. And um, Isaiah uh, quickly became quite the entrepreneur. Um, people began to see and see the value in and want to support this young man in, uh, in, in selling in his offering. And so he began to sell his t-shirts and began to make money. And I began to, um, he began this book where he tracked his sales and I began to teach him and talk to him as both a math lesson, a financial literacy lesson, and ultimately a lesson about giving. Um, I began to break down what I wanted and create a model for what I wanted him, how I wanted him to look at money and how I wanted him to understand it, um, and how I wanted him to understand leveraging at, as a vehicle for generating and building wealth but also as a, um, as a vehicle to be transformed by giving. So for every dollar that he got, he had to write in, in his book, which he still keeps, um, and he, had to, he has to track how much he made. He has a percentage that has to go into savings. He has a percentage that has to um, go back into investing in his, in making, he has to invest back into the company so that he can buy the materials to make more um, of his products. He was saving toward a goal that he could spend, um, and so he was tracking how much he was saving, and he had a percentage that he had to give away. Um, he, had to, he had to make sure that uh, what he understood about receiving was that he also had to give. And um, he tracked those percentages, and he had to come up with a creative project for how he would give away the money. What would he do with the portion of the percentage that he would give back? And Isaiah, I would love for you to, to, to talk about the decision that you made, um, what, what, how, how you decided to use um, the money for, 
for, for giving back and um, what inspired this particular um, vehicle for giving. Um, and we call them and we write about what is what Isaiah called give backpacks. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about those give backpacks if you don't mind. All right, so when I was like creating the give backpacks. Could you stand up, please? Or would you feel, you feel more comfortable sitting? Okay, that's messed up. <laughs> well, when I was creating the give backpacks, I was tired of like whatever home, people experiencing homelessness would come up to my car, well, the car, ask for money. We never really had, like, we had any like cash or like tiny amounts of cash that we could give to them. And I was always worried that like if we did ever have tiny amounts of cash, that it wouldn't be enough for them to get the things that they need. So one day I decided that we should go shopping and like get a bunch of materials and things that the people experiencing homelessness might need. And we put them in a bag. And whenever we see people, we can hand those to them. And they're always very thankful and it makes me proud. Can you share what, can you, I'd love for you to share a little bit about what you actually put in it, if you don't mind, and um, if you could break down the percentages of, of how, you, how you split the money, yes. So the things we usually put in the give backpacks, we gotta make sure they have um, food, so like maybe like two snacks, and then, yes, two snacks, water, and socks so to keep their feet warm. And I think that that's pretty much it. Sometimes we, in the beginning rounds, we'd also put um, Oh, and then like dollars too. He said, he said, he said it was my idea to put cough drops Yeah, I don't know why he It wasn't his idea, but I mean, I don't know. I thought it, I thought it, I thought it might be that's valuable. Rude. That's but rude, that's rude. He wasn't a fan of, of, of the cough drop. That's rude. Um, and it wasn't. Um, and what 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 about the percentages? How 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 you divvied up your the money? So whenever I make whenever I make money, my dad wants me to be successful and like succeed. So he makes me split it into different categories. And those those four categories, I have to put ten percent into the give back packs. So giving back, I have to put another 10% into um, investing in my business or investing in anything I can use to make more money. I put 40% in my spendings account and 40% in my savings. And that's, that's what I do whenever I make money so I can make sure I'm, I'm doing right. Yeah. Thank you, Isaiah. Thank you all so much. So um, Don had another. He was teaching also at Glen Memorial Church this morning, so he was uh, running between things. So he, I think, hated to leave but needed to scoot over to um, Emory Campus to another church. Let me tell you, um, I'll say a quick minute or two about the chapter that Catherine and I wrote and then something about how to use this book um, 
So uh, Catherine and I wrote about uh, helping particularly white uh, adolescents deal with the emotions um, around uh, racial justice work without centering their emotions in public. I mean, there's a sort of repeated problem of white people getting into pluralistic public spaces, especially in racial justice contexts, and then talking about how we feel. So we need to stop our kids from doing that, but also give them spaces to really talk about the kind of emotions that are turned up in racial justice work. And so we focused our chapter on the contradictory emotions of outrage and complicity. And Catherine landed on using collage as a resource for thinking about that, because collage as an art form helps you capture contradiction without needing to resolve it. And so in our chapter, um, like Isaiah uh, gives the steps for how to do a give backpack. And in our chapter, Catherine does the steps for how to do a collage and then use it as a resource for meditation on contradictory emotions. So each chapter, there, this is uh, the most accessible book I've ever been a part of, for sure. Each chapter is 10 to 12 pages. They're short. Uh, they end with what we call a, um, what do we call it? A try it out section that gives you sort of concrete instructions on how to do this thing, this practice that we've been describing. Um, but really the invitation in the book is to not read it quickly, but to read one chapter at a time, sit with it, try out the suggestions that we make, but also adapt them to your family and your context and your concerns, and then let us know uh, what works for you. So we've been doing a lot of book groups around this. We have a website, parentingbetterworldbook.com, that was uh, created by another friend of ours named Jen Carlier, and on that website there's a discussion guide that was created by Amy Lazzaroni, and so it's working, I think, pretty well with groups. Groups can just download it. I think we're gonna do some book groups here uh, in the spring um, at St. Luke's and certainly around town. Um, so I know Horace is looking at me. Do we need to wrap up, Horace? <laughs> Okay, good. Let me just, can I just close this out officially with some words from the afterward? And then if anybody has a question, there's a microphone up here, and we'd, I think Isaiah would love to take some questions. <laughs> Carlton and Anton, too. <laughs> this kid. Uh, one of the happiest things for me in this whole process was getting to interview the two of them. Um, and then what we put into the book was the transcript of the interview. And so it was just the, one of the happiest things I've done the last few years. So, um, sorry, i got to put my glasses on again. So these are some words just from the afterword of the book. So we hope that the voices collected here offer some encouragement for you. Whether you take up a particular practice or not, let yourself be encouraged by the thought that someone, somewhere, is doing that good thing. People all over are parenting for a better world. We're trying in our own ways to make this beautiful planet a more just place where our children and our children's children will flourish. Take heart, knowing that you are not alone, and that every little thing you do matters. We really believe that God is present always and everywhere doing a new thing, taking our small everyday offerings and weaving them into a better world for all. So thank you all for being here and thank you all for participating this morning. And I, I don't know, if we do have time, we're happy to take a question or two. Mm -hmm.
<laughs> She's talking. I'm really inspired by the sweatshirt mm -hmm. and would like to know where we can get them. Um, the one that Isaiah's wearing or the one that you made? Both. Did you want to answer that? Yes. You can get um, all these shirts, and it's not just stuff for men, it's stuff for most genders. And um, you can get it from uh, blackmensmile.com. Blackmensmile.com? Yes, ma'am. Um, this has been so uh, inspiring and it's so timely. Oh, well, yes, let me do that. Uh, this has been so inspiring and so timely uh, for the season of Advent that gives us hope. And um, Isaiah and Father and uh, panelists and Dr. Marshall have really inspired us to to find this hope that yes it's in our the parenting and the generations that will come after us that will continue to go to carry to move forward the great work that it needs to be done in this world for a better world of peace and justice so let's thank them for this wonderful offering Please keep in mind the books are for sale and those proceeds will go for the Ansley School. Kippy is standing in the back showing the book. Please, please support this effort. Thank you very much. We'll see you in church.